the plan is, you know, we're, we were around done with like Isaiah 41. And I've just been feeling too like, you know, we need to sort of move. Um, and so um, I thought that what we can do is go, we're going to go through the, the servant songs of Isaiah to sort of move us ahead. I want to have you read some in between as we do that. But the servant songs, which we're starting tonight and talk more about tonight, um, really start giving us a focus um, that's going to propel us, literally, um, propel us through Isaiah, but also through to Jesus, all right, which we've seen how those illusions have happened as we've been going through Isaiah. I mean, I thought with the fact, too, with Easter coming up, um, that this is a good time to sort of, you know, move through that. And what's neat is that the servant songs end with um, the servant song in Isaiah 53, um, which is probably one of the both most well-known verses of all of Scripture uh, by people because it it seems that what well, does, as we learn, uh, points to Christ, and he uses that and references that. Um, but what I thought we would do, and actually... Pete probably doesn't even know that he's going to get credit for this, but <laughs> you, Pete, about a, I don't know, a year ago or something, told me about that new Atonement book. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, from William Craig. Yeah. And I had thought, you know, when he first told me about it, I just sort of put this little seed in my mind that, you know, it would be really neat to go through and learn more about the Atonement. Um, and so as I was having my little break, um, I started to read the book and started to listen to more and stuff and thought, wow, this could be a really good little mini series we could do as we then are hitting Lent season and, and moving up to the cross. So I thought what we would do is the plan is to say, let's try to do a servant song each week. We'll do 41, 42 today. And we'll do a servant song for each week. And then we're going to go through and take a look, actually, at this whole thing called atonement. I mean, I don't know if someone call it doctrine because it's in Scripture and we get doctrines from it. Um, but it's a central key thing about what Jesus did on the cross, if not the central thing that he did on the cross. Uh, but there's been a lot of controversy around it, too, about penal substitution. Like, what does that even mean? There's all these big words that are used about it. So I'd like to really get into that, learn about it, and learn about it from a scriptural perspective to give you also the ability and all of us to have the language about it. <clears throat> so when people talk about that, you know, we're like, what does that mean? You know, Jesus died on the cross for us. He, you know, gave his life for us. Um, all, you know, what does all that stuff mean around us? So um, my hope is to spend whatever weeks we have left between Isaiah and Easter going through that um, and just learn more about that and walk again primarily walk through the scriptures and wrestle with what is this that is going on in fact we're going through the bible recap right uh, you know our church as a church we're walking through the bible reading through it and it's interesting because you already see that atonement all the way back <coughs> to exodus um, you see this this idea of it already starting to form um, so we'll go back and look at all that so that's my plan okay questions thoughts you all look blank space. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know what I mean when I say the atonement? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, 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 we'll find out more about it as we go through. Okay. And you've read the whole book, I think, haven't you? Do you have any thoughts on it? Do you have any 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was good. So I think he he took like a three pronged approach to it, right? Where he looked at um, he looked at the idea of atonement in scripture, and he approached it from a church father perspective. So mm-hmm. what did the early Christian writers say about it? Like, what did they write about it? What did they believe about it? Um, as well as a philosophical approach. So using philosophy, logic. And then the third thing was was taking um, a legal perspective. So so looking at law, right? Like, like law, using it law to prove, prove the case. Because the atonement in some degree is has to do with law and judgment before God. So then he works in um, he works in like like basically our legal system into the conversation as well as philosophy as well as what do the church fathers teach about it and then of course scripture and the whole thing. It's kind of an interesting approach. Yeah. But the atonement is definitely something that People don't necessarily, I guess, understand doctrinally, or there's different. There's some different views on it, and I don't think he. I don't. I don't think he. He, he basically said these are maybe these. These are some ways in which the atonement could work, or make or make sense in in in, in different philosophical views, um, in you know different theological views in these different contexts, and how we can make sense of it and make a logical and coherent thing out of it. Um, what? Yeah. Yeah, because 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 sometimes yeah sometimes, sometimes well because sometimes, it, because you're we'll dealing with it's illogical right or and so whatever. that's part like, of oh okay yeah and that's part yeah. of actually mm-hmm. that's part of I'm going to just say bluntly sort of an attack on the Christian exactly. faith exactly sure right exactly. now is that right. there's a lot going on where people are attacking and saying oh God is this violent God who right. killed his son and how right. could he's a, I mean horrible things that sort of they do, they attribute to God, because yeah. they don't really understand this. And so actually today oh, in our current environment, you might not hear, but you might hear at some point, mm-hmm. I hope to equip us too, to be able to say, look, biblically, <clears throat> this is here, this is what Jesus did, and be able to at least be able to think well through that. And there is, you know, we'll bring Charlie in <laughs> with the legal stuff. <laughs> there is, <laughs> oh, there right. is, there is a legal aspect of, he's, there's an arguments done also from a legal perspective, but the legal, the, the, the thing is trying to understand our legal system in contrast with the legal system back then. And some, yeah. there are some parallels, but there are also some differences too. So people are trying to, a lot of times to take our culture and put it on top of scripture rather than what we want to do is look at scripture yeah, and have it speak to our culture. Yeah, okay. And I think, I mean, one of the things he does in his book, which I, I do like, is he starts out grounding you into what does the Bible actually say about this. Yeah. Let's really take a look at what it says. Look at what we do in this group. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we'll see how that goes. And we'll just, that, that's sort of the, that's the plan. It sounds very interesting. Yeah, it should be, it should be, um, I mean, what I hope too is to get much more of an appreciation out of really saying, what did Jesus really do on the cross? You know, and how does it, how did it really change the world, and how does it really change us? Yeah. I mean, that's really what the atonement's about. Yeah, it's really it's a, it's giving a, us a new creation in Christ by taking away something that we that caused us to stay in sin. So, yeah, it was it was a transaction. 
Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it was a transaction. It's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. Was good and, word. and, you know, I mean, it was so much more it's than like that. like he paid something. Do you know what God paid for you? Do you really get <laughs> right. that? You know? Yeah. How does it make sense? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. He owns yeah. Right. How does it make sense that he was able to do that? And right. How does it make sense that it's that it's able to be applied to us? Yeah. And what things do we have to kind of relate those to today? Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. So it's good. Good. Okay. What's the name of the author of the book? William Craig. Oh, Craig? He's yeah, C-R-A-I-G. William Lane Craig. Yeah. Oh, William Craig. Lane Craig. Yeah. All right. Um, so... <clears throat> Well, we can sort of pretend, I mean, well, not pretend, but I mean, Tom's the only one that hasn't been through our Isaiah stuff so far. Um, I don't know how many other people may or may not be here, but pretty much most of you have gone through that. I thought, why don't we just start out with, um, as we're going to hit these servant songs, which the first one's going to be in 42. Right now, just I just want to spend a couple minutes, and also since we've had like about a two-month break, to sort of have you go through... What has Isaiah been about? I just ask you that, or someone was to ask you, but I'm asking you right now. You know, what's Isaiah about? I mean, with the stuff that we've gone through so far, from the very beginning of Isaiah one to where we are now, how would you? What things stand out to you? What What is this whole book about? What are the things that have struck you about it? To just sort of give us an overview of catching up, John. Your identity with God. Okay, your identity with... That's the biggest thing that stands out to me. And how would you... Is there a certain identity that stands out to you about that? What is our identity in God? Our identity is in God. In God. <laughs> All right, good. That's our identity what is in God. Right. I don't think that was really clear in my head prior to this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that my total identity is wrapped up in God. I felt strongly... Uh, a affinity and a connection with God, but with, never thought of it as in terms of my identity. I thought my identity is a little separate from God. Oh, you interesting. Know, okay. I never thought as being one and the same. Huh. And one and the same, once you get it in your head, it's one and the same. Well, it's so simple. Everything just falls into place after that. Uh, you relax, you know, just, mm-hmm. there's no confusion anymore. You don't try to be something you're not. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's my identity is in God. Huh. And, one and the same. It's not me trying to figure out what I should be doing or want to do or should, you know. It's just one and the same. It's the same thing. Yeah. I think he's speaking to us individually, but he's also speaking to Israel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's corporate, both yeah. us individually yeah. and to the group. Yeah. I mean, that's part of why in the sermon on Sunday I actually <clears throat> said, I was talking to Jeff, I purposely said, you know, that, that collective about who we are, that who we are is not just obviously us individually, not just us little church, but we're part of this larger body of Christ throughout the entire world, you know, and so our identity is, is part of being part of that, I, that group, yeah. All right? Others, what do you just, what has Isaiah been about? Judgment. Judgment. Okay. <laughs> Big time. All right. Here on, Bill. <laughs> so what has a judgment been about? What's, what's, he why uses is... different means to get what God wants, and sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. Mm-hmm. But like using Babylon to, <clears throat> as his pawn to 
take them down, you know, and okay. teach them a lesson, and then turn around, here comes the Persians, they, they take Babylon, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just God's um, sovereignty, and I think for me, it's like we don't necessarily know what's going on, but we just got to trust in God that he mm-hmm. does, and go with it, that's what I get from it. Okay, so on, on what Bill's saying about judgment, a couple things, one is idols, yeah, particularly. And what about idols? What's the problem with idols? It could be anything. The children of Israel are worshiping idols, right? We're and what's that causing them to do? It's causing them. It's 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 causing them to become like the idols. Okay. One. Yeah. But two, then there's the immorality that follows from that mm-hmm. in not honoring God, um, and and becoming like the idols in that they're. They can't see here. Very or, good. You know, Which takes us know, back to Isaiah. Spiritually. Isaiah 6. six. <laughs> right, very good. So that that whole idea that we, be, uh, Psalm 115, that we become what we worship, and if we worship idols, whatever that is, okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever yeah. that may yeah. be, it's, it's that we become like it and... The whole idea about becoming deaf and blind without understanding about God, because we're looking at this, and we did that yeah. whole thing with the mirror. We, you know, we in essence become a mirror to the thing we worship, yeah. um, and that's the theme that goes all the way through Isaiah, all the way through the Bible, yeah. <laughs> all the way to yeah. today. Um, that whole idea about worship. Did you have something else besides that? You were saying. Well, I mean, <clears throat> so just just beyond that, um, the injustices also to the widows and the orphans, and you know, uh, okay, God, good. God mentions that, yeah. and that goes back to the judgment that um, Bill was talking about there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's interesting when you start worshiping idols because the idols are not human. You end up starting to treat humans not in their identity. You start treating them as just objects. You start depersonalizing them. And so we saw the judgment that we continually see with that. All right? Others, what? Like saying how our identity is, is in God, uh, in Yahweh, but he's defining his own identity, too. Hmm. What, what he is, he goes on to say, uh, there's no one like me. And, you know, could any idol say to you, uh, you know, or would I say to you, you know, go and be healed or whatever, and it's not going to happen. Yeah. What is that verse? Uh, it's like in 44. Uh, he says, why would I declare something good to you? And then, uh, like, it's not going to, to my people, and it's not going to happen. Oh, because, yeah, 48 has that, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, but yeah, 48 is in part time. But the bookmark that I gave you, that green thing, uh-huh. that there, I think maybe that's more part of it. Yeah. Okay. Which right. is how I mean that, that he he's immeasurable. There's all these things about who he is, in that uh, his identity is like super important. Right. And he so in Isaiah in 48, which so, I guess is also in 43 a little bit, <clears throat> but in 48 it's this idea around God wants to make sure we know He is the one who's doing this. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's not us and our power, 
but it's him that's doing it. So to make sure we know he's doing it, what does he do? He tells us what's going to happen before it happens, so that when it happens, prophecy, then you you will know it's him and not attributed. Very good. The whole point of prophecy is not so much, oh, predict something ahead of time so I know it's going to happen. The idea of prophecy here in Scripture is predictive prophecy that I told you it, now it happened, that shows you that I'm God, not you, the one that made it happen. <laughs> so it's a little different yeah. way of thinking about yeah. prophecy. Mostly people think of prophecy like, oh, I'm, I'm going to predict the future. That's not the point. The point is when it happens, yeah. because he prophesies it, you can be certain that he was God who did it. So what would be his point in doing that then? Obviously, to put him first. Yeah, him uh, first. right. That no. he is God. He has that relationship, number one. Right. When I say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain, I, the Lord, speak the truth. There you go. Yeah. What's that? What verse is that? That was what I was saying. 45. Okay. All right. Right. All right. Others. What? Um. It just seems to me like going through it. Like I keep reading Isaiah, then like seeing cross references to like Matthew and John, and then reading Matthew and John and seeing cross references. Mm-hmm. And like obviously, there's all the prophecy that's that makes it so obvious. Like the uh, like Jesus being who. He's, being who, like Isaiah said, he was going to be. Right. But then also just, like, other things that are just, like, so obvious that it's, like, the same spirit and, like, show that it's, like, Scripture is Scripture. Like, hmm. I know I've heard people, like, talk before, like, when you read Scripture, like, you know it's, like, Scripture and has the same spirit. And even reading, yeah. like, yeah. in Isaiah 44, when it talks about, like, this one will say, I am the Lord's, another will call on the name of Jacob, another will write on his hand um, the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. And just, like, the idea of, like, that being, like, synonymous, like, us today could be part part of that as God's children, but like then even in John, like it's, or in Matthew rather, um, like when John the Baptist is like talking to the Pharisees, and like yeah. this is before like Jesus kind of comes into the story. Um, where is it? I might have to find it, but basically he says to like the Pharisees, like, hey, like the Lord could raise up like rocks as children of Abraham, and so it's just that like 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 same spirit of like. No, it's not like the fact that you're just like Jewish by birth that makes you like part of Israel, like mm-hmm. part of God's chosen people. It's like those who choose to follow after Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, good chat. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Thoughts? The, uh, to me, it's such a, all these things. I'm, I want to do a real thorough study on identity. But all the things like the identity of God himself, everything that I'm seeing in here all plays back into that. Because we can't know our own identity unless we know the heart of God. Mm-hmm. If we seek the heart of God, then we'll know the way God communicates. Right? Yeah. Then we'll know how to know God because we're seeking after the heart of God. It's just, it's just this like beautiful snowball that yeah. occurs. And eventually we'll come to who we are. And we'll really know what we're here to do. And it just says it very plainly, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly who we are and what we're here to do. And all it comes down to, as John so aptly says, is believing it. Yeah. That's it. It's just all in here and we got to see it. And it's the book is bookended so beautifully. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Go for it. <laughs> Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's one, two. 66, 24. And they shall go, they, the remnant, Israel, uh-huh. us, shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men, not children, who have rebelled against me. Hmm. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not uh-huh. be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Which is to say, of course, they chose poorly. <laughs> they were not willing to do what he says here in 66. But then that's that's his beginning and his end. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. throughout, it's filled in with, here's how you do it, guys. Right? And what do they do? And again. <laughs> so those that don't will walk out and see all the dead bodies of those that chose not to, which is a bummer. But... What form that takes, I don't know. Of mm-hmm. course, that we don't know. But again, <clears throat> he says clearly, but this is the one, this is again in 66, whom I will look, to whom I will look. Okay, guys, write this down. This is the guy to be. This is God speaking. He who is humble and contrite mm. in spirit and trembles at my word. Period. End of story. <laughs> That's it. Okay, cool. So why does he tell us prophecy? Why does he judge us? Why does he do all this? For that reason. Right. Read that again. But this is the one to whom I will look. Hmm. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's just... Which verse is that, Jason? So simple. That is 66.2. 56 what? 3? 66 2. 66 is a, a pretty perfect summary, actually, yeah, yeah. of the whole deal. Yeah. So, what do we call that, everybody? When you start with something and you end with something? Chiasm? Well, that, yeah. Inclusio. Right. Inclusio. Which is also chiasm, it's also chiasm, so it's sort of both. Very good. Okay. <laughs> and what does inclusio mean? It's the what? It's the meat of the sandwich. Yeah. Okay. It's like you got the bookends. Yeah. Like it's like, just it's like, like, it's like the way you do every book report in high school and college. Bibliography, <laughs> <laughs> first chapter, last chapter, got it. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Introduction, body, conclusion. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Anybody else? Anything else that you can think of offhand? Going to Isaiah. All right. I mean, it's it it like it doesn't end. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it, it, the more I read it, the more it just becomes like fluid. Yeah. All right. So that's a good. What Jason just said there is a good introduction to where we're going with these things called servant songs of Isaiah. Okay. Just some very quick background. There has been so much written about these songs. I mean, books and books and books and books and books. I think of John saying about, he says there's not enough books written about Jesus. Well, that's about it with the servant songs. 
so much stuff that people wrestle with these servant songs. And part of it has been, you've got the situation where clearly Jesus and the New Testament is saying that Jesus is fulfilling him, he is the one that's fulfilling this servant language in these what's called songs that we'll look at. <clears throat> Part of the problem we always have to realize is that for Israel at this time, they have no idea about Jesus. So we always want to, we've said this before, you always want to try to get yourself into what is the people of Israel thinking of at this time, okay, and what is going on then as opposed to saying, well, Jesus now shows that he's fulfilled it, which he has, absolutely. But if we just too quick go there, we don't really get into the text of Isaiah and learn about what these servant songs are trying to tell us. Now. So we're going to be doing that. Now, one of the things that's going to be a big question through all these servant songs is, assuming just take Jesus out of the picture from them because you're back in that time, who are these servant songs referring to? Because it's always talking about a servant. All right? So trying to get the idea of who is that servant that's being talked about. And we can wrestle with that, which we will. But as you'll see, it's it's very, it's not clear. Probably very much on purpose. Because ultimately, it's will become Jesus who is that servant song. So there are four servant songs. All right, if you guys, do you guys have pens? Anybody have, need a pen? I do. Do you need a pen? Let's see. Do you have a pen? pen. See it. Do you have an extra one? Uh-huh. Sorry. All right. Um, so if you've got your these guys, let's walk through just what these are right now. Um, and what you'll see... As we go through here, so I just want to mark where they are so we, so we can sort of see where we're going. Uh, and there's, is some discussion sometimes about where do these end and where do these begin. The first three servant songs, pretty much everybody is in agreement, like this is where they begin. But there's controversy, not controversy, there's discussion about where do they end. The fourth servant song, it's more the discussion of where it begins than where it ends. Okay, not so much a big deal because we'll look at the whole thing as we go through. Um, all right, so the first one is, so if you want to, you can either both write these down. Well, in fact, I'll just, yeah, maybe we'll just do that. Why don't you just write them down right now? Um, and so the first one, let me see. Okay, so the first, the first one is Isaiah 42. And I'm going to say 1 through 9. Okay, so the first one that we're going to look at tonight is Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. The second servant song is Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. The third is Isaiah 50, 4 through 11. And the last one is Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12. Normally, just called Isaiah 53 is <laughs> how most people how most people term that. Um, and it's also what's going to be what? Isaiah, pardon me, Isaiah 52:13 or 13. Yeah, Isaiah 52:13 to 53:12. 
Oh. Does that make sense? So it sort of crosses a chapter there. Now, what's neat about when we get to 53 is that 53 is also where we start getting the language of the atonement, which is what's going to then jump us mm. over into that subject. Okay. So it sort of should hopefully fit nicely in here. Okay. So um, we're going to start walking through these. Let's turn to Isaiah 42. And I'm going to just jump right in because it's going to cause us to sort of move around some as we go through here. Uh, all right. So one of the things I want you to be thinking about as we do this is who is being referred to here. Okay. So just starting right out. In fact, we have it right at the very beginning. Why is it called a servant song? Isaiah 42. Why do they call it a servant song? <laughs> because it starts out with? Behold my servant. Behold my servant. <laughs> Very good. All right. So just take a look at this first one. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. As we go through here, I want you to be thinking how is part of what we're going to be thinking now um, is also how does this connect to Jesus? What are we learning about the ultimate servant in this? And then how, as John said, how does that apply to our identity? Because we're called to be that servant. All right. So you want to think application about that as we go through this whole thing. All right. So behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Let me just start right there. Who is my servant in context to Isaiah? We're talking about, not talking about Jesus right now. Okay, so who is my servant here? Me. Well, but you're not back in the time of Isaiah. <laughs> we'll get you. Um, it's us. Just well, yeah. Back in this time, if if I'm reading this, I I'm just like literally. It's all like I'm walking. You guys haven't, but it's like I'm walking in a movie theater. I'm walking it halfway through the movie. I'm in Isaiah 42. <laughs> okay? And I look and I go, and I hear, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Now, we've already looked at everything all the way up to 42. We've gone all the way through 41. So I don't know if you guys remember, when you hear that language, what are you thinking? Is it Jesus? Not Jesus yet. Yes, Jesus, Messiah. you can't. He, we're, we're sort of putting him behind the curtain right now. Okay? The, the children of Israel. Okay. Well, like you said, Messiah. There's no Messiah yet. Yeah, but the, the, the Messiah is an idea. It's not. It's an idea. Yeah, like the son of David. He's he's, he's sure. speaking throughout this of a savior. Well, okay. So I want to go back. Forty-two. How about Isaiah. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing. Okay. Well, it says if you can. So I want you to just. So what do we do with Isaiah forty-two? This is good. He will, bring forth my justice. He, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay. So he, he, it's something in the future. All right. We bring justice to the nations. Have we heard this language before? Yes. Yeah. Where? Where did we hear this language for of uh, uh, my servant? Isaiah himself. 
and where. Isaiah was a servant back. Where? Servant Israel. Six. What did you say, Tom? Well, so we're in Isaiah 42. My servant. Where have we heard this my servant language before? And where identifies who my servant is? Six. Nope. Why don't you go back one chapter? Five. <laughs> Three. <laughs> All right. This will remind, I'm sort of doing this in a way because it's going to remind us where we left off a couple months ago. All right. 41.8. Very good. Did you say that, Charlie? Was I, yeah, I did Oh, Ruben. Ruben said that. What do you say? <laughs> I know who said it, but I was like turning this way. Like turned up. What you All right, so Ruben? 41.8. 41.8. 41.8. Excellent. All right. Excellent. Give me a number. Okay. Oh, Jacob. Okay, you guys see that? Yeah. Very good. Okay, so just in the context, we're in chapter 41. We get the first time the, uh, the servant language is used. And in 41, it's pretty darn clear. Mm-hmm. Right? That's why, you know, context is everything, they say in Scripture, okay? Um, if you don't look at context, you're going to probably have a pretext, which means you're going to determine something falsely. So context is key. So that's why I always say when you, and I always think like, um, Concentric circles? Yeah, that's the right word. Concentric circles with context. You're in a certain place in passage. Okay? Read the chapter. Read the whole, you know, couple chapters, the beginning and the end. Go out from there and try to get what is the context that's going on. So if we just take, if someone just automatically out of 42 starts reading My Servant, and they don't look at the context, they're going to just come up with things. All right. Yeah. Okay. So you guys see where it says that there? Yes. See the language? But you, Israel, my servant. So right there is identifying who my servant is. Not saying that's the only possibility. I'm just saying right there in context, it's pretty obvious. We just said it in Isaiah 41. Right. We just identified it. Right. Which again, identity. Yeah. Yeah. Very fatherly. Yeah. Yeah, but who's Israel? Right? We're Israel. So who's this speaking to? Yeah, we're Israel here in time, right? Who's this speaking to? In that time. This is one and the same. It's it's talking to Israel then, but it's talking to Israel for all eternity. True, true. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. But at least in the context of here, does that make sense? In the context of here we're speaking about Israel. How do we know that? Because it just said in 41. All right. So, behold my servant whom I uphold. And what does it say about my servant here? What do we know about the servant in Isaiah 42? So this is Israel and Obviously, it's, it was, we all just are doing, we're jumping to today even. But if this is Israel, what do we know about the servant? The servant is what? What do you see in verse one? The very beginning. Chosen. He's chosen. Right. Who chose the servant? God. Very good. Okay. 
goes back to what John said about identity. Yeah. Right? He put his spirit upon him. Yeah, chosen. Yeah, chosen by him. Okay. All right. Then it says, I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. Is that Israel? Ancient Israel. Is that what Israel was supposed to do? Go to that question. Yeah? <laughs> supposed to, yeah. Yeah. Where does that go back to? That, 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 uh, that Israel was supposed to be bringing... Surrendered. Yeah, and the light to the nations. Genesis. Well, how Genesis. far does that go back? Where do you guys go back to with that? All the way to Genesis. All the way to Genesis. Where in Genesis? Is that like 30, I think? Okay. Abrahamic covenants. Very good. Yeah. The Abrahamic covenants. Okay. So this idea that a nation is going to become the light to all the nations goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Which is to Abraham saying, You will become a blessing to all the nations. <clears throat> I mean, we ultimately are still part of that promise, right? That covenant. Um, and in fact, that's part of the problem is because even to this day, you see that it's looking for Israel, it's looking beyond just them and saying, You have a task to do. You're supposed to be the light of the world. We can still get stuck in that, can't we? Like, who are we called to be? To become the light of the world. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To go from Jew to bring the whole world in on that salvation. So our task as a church is not to be, oh, let's just be a little church. Our task is to be that light to the world. And what are we supposed to do with the other nations? What's the ultimate thing that's supposed to happen with the other nations? Be a blessing. Be a blessing. And how do we know when we become a blessing to the other nations? <laughs> what will happen when the servant, when Israel, when us, what will happen... When we, what will be the thing to know that yes, we have accomplished that purpose, that task that God's given to us? What will happen? Jesus return. The way? Jesus return. Okay. Be, All right, that's fine. Yeah, there, Jesus will return. Okay. There, there will be justice. <clears throat> be justice. What will that look like? Successfully share the gospel. Okay, so that's that's definitely well, we will have shared the gospel. What's what's going to happen? Judgment. Hmm. Judgment. What judgment will happen? Okay. Filled with oh. the spirit. <laughs> Not just going to see it, you guys get it. All right. Give us another clue. Isaiah two. <laughs> Isaiah two. Isaiah two. He said, I'm just trying to get us all caught up. So what is really going on here that we're, that we're supposed to, it's supposed to be happening? <clears throat> If you guys can remember way back, it's been about a year now, right? Way back in Isaiah 2. Yeah, Isaiah 2 tells us and points to a future fulfillment 
of God's plan that he's laying out. And he lays it out right in Isaiah 2. All right? So, take a look. Well, look at, let's look at verse 2. All right. So listen to what happens. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. And all the nations will flow to it. Okay. Sort of this reversal going. That's not us just going to the nations. When we've accomplished that, what's going to happen? The nations will come to us. Okay, the nations will flow. The nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for the peoples. So this is an interesting view I thought about. This is what's going to happen in the end. We tend to think what's going to happen to the nations. And the nations here are in essence, ultimately, well, they, they're the ones who don't believe, okay, but they see something happening, <laughs> And they see something going on. They're saying, we want to be part of that. And now they come to us. Does that make sense? It's, a, it's like extended family members. Yeah. It's like they're seeing something happen and seeing how distinct God's people are. And they're saying, we, that is such a witness. That's the ultimate light of the world that the nations are now going to come to us. I mean, you think about that, it's like, wow. <laughs> what that means for that to happen. That's tried to happen a couple times in the past. All right. So you see this with, I think it's with Solomon, okay? You see where nations come because of all the things that are happening with Israel. The nations actually come to find out and want to be part of what's going on that God's doing. Israel was always supposed to be that light to do that. And you see that what happens is the judgment is Thank you. that they're not doing that. They're, be, they're not, the nations are not coming to them. What are they doing? But think about what, what's happening instead. Not that this happens today. What's happening instead, this is what's supposed to happen is Israel is supposed to be such a light to the nations that the nations come to them. What instead has Israel is Israel doing? The diaspora. They're fighting with all their neighbors. Yeah, right. Eventually they self-destructed. <laughs> okay. What do we say about idols? You become like them. You become like them. What are the nations doing? The nations are worshiping idols. What does Israel do? Same thing. Not become the light to show that there is really only one God. They instead, what? Become like the nations. Yep. <laughs> See the opposite thing going on there? But, but they're even better at it. 
<laughs> yeah, really good at it. Really, really, really good at it. So good at it that God then uses the nations to judge Israel. Yeah, that's right. Israel's the one that got judged. Right. You see that just this reversal? I mean, is that not like a little wake-up call to first today even? It's like, who are we becoming like? Mm-hmm. Are we become your identity here? Your question. Totally. Are we? Is God our identity, and that's what we reflect to the world, or are we just reflecting to the world what the world is? Yeah. Yeah. Israel is like in its survival mode, and so you're saying that eventually. That will change, and the nations will come to Israel. The nations will come to us. Let's right. say us right now, because as Jason said, we we today now that we're post Jesus, right? We are now Israel. That's right. Okay. So I don't right want to. I want to. We could have a whole discussion about, but we are Israel. Okay. Are you making a distinction between? Israel, the Jewish Israel, or Messianic Jews, or... No. Saying, so with Jesus, you end up having the nation of Israel. Right. That's a good, good, okay. You have the nation of Israel called to be the light of the world. Right. But they're not doing it. But they're not doing it. Well, ultimately... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what, what happens... Okay, part of that knowing, the way we understand the identity, the way we understand these wordings is by understanding the way God's communicating. So one of the stumbling blocks that he put in here right from the beginning, he said, I'm going to make it so you can't hear. I'm going to make it so you can't see. I'm going to make it so you can't understand. Okay, so the wording in here, he's talking about is an eternal reality. He's talking about a spiritual reality. He's talking about an identity that does not live by the world standards. So this nation of Israel that he's speaking of are the ones that answer the call. So it comes down to a choice. I'm going to use you guys to seed this nation, the children of Jacob, okay? But from that point on, I'm laying down prophecy that is then going to open the door for all of us to then, if we so choose, to take on the name Israel. Is it like the, um, not all Israel is Israel? Is what? Is that all of Israel is Israel? I think it's in Romans. Is all Israel, yeah, in Romans? Yeah. Well, right, and you get to the remnant part, okay? Not all are cultural. Exactly. Yeah. Right, and Paul actually... Um, misunderstood a lot, but in Romans 9 through 11, you get the answer to the question about who is Israel, and the fact that because Israel has failed to do what Israel is supposed to do, they're sort of on timeout, <laughs> that way of putting it, but they're on timeout, and we get grafted in, and we have to be really careful because we get grafted in, and also we get arrogant and think, look, us, we're just grafted into what God was already doing with Israel. But now we are all, we're the church, those who all believe in Christ. We are now what Israel used to be, okay? That's what Jesus did on the cross. He, in in essence, opened up the going, the 
the nations to be able to say everybody now yeah. has that salvation to them. Yeah. And all sense. who believe are now, I guess I could say the true Israel. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But we, we now have this task. That's why we look at Isaiah right now. We have the same task. We are supposed to be this servant. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, ultimately we're going to see Jesus becomes that. But he becomes the ultimate servant so we can now become the servant. More like Jesus. Sort of almost like this. Here's Israel, and Israel's not fulfilling itself. And we're going to see through these servant songs, it comes down to saying Israel's not doing it. Less and less and less. No, Israel can't do it. He can't do it. Oh, can't do it. 400 years later. God's gone to Israel. Where did our God go? Jesus shows up. And now Jesus becomes the ultimate, the Israel, takes upon that himself as the servant, dies on the cross. Why? So now all who believe in him can now become what this Israel is supposed to be. Yeah. Or see us like this. This is who we are. <laughs> Make sense, everyone? Yeah? Yeah. Right. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no. Okay. I, and what Jason said makes sense, too. I, I get caught. <laughs> it's like getting caught up in the world. I mean, I, I'm looking yeah. at Israel from a, a worldly point of view, not yes. from a godly point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. And that's why, but now you hear Greg's opinion a little bit now. That's yeah. why we have to be really careful when we use the word Israel today. Okay. There's a lot of stuff about Israel and the Christians trying to work with Israel and you talking about Israel as a nation. We just have to be very careful about who is Israel. Because Israel today is a nation, just like the United States is. It's a government. Okay, it's an it's not a government controlled by even <laughs> the Jewish system so much as natural government independent, controlling a land, and we can get confused about when we say the word Israel, what are we talking about? Yeah. All right. And a lot of different views on that, but I'm just saying you just have to be careful because who is Israel today? You know, we, Paul will tell us in Galatians when we went through Galatians, the thing is we are the, we are that by nature of the fact that we have believed in Christ. And because we believed in Christ, we have the spirit in us. That makes us, that we're, that's our identity now. The, the, what, what Chad had quoted um, earlier um, speaks to that. There'll come a time in that day when there are those who are us who will claim the name of Israel. And you will write, they will write on their hands the Lord's. Okay? So that is your identity. If you are owned by the Lord, if you are possessed by the Lord, then you are the nation of Israel. That's the, that's the identifier. Yeah, I would say you are Israel. I'm not sure if I'd say the nation of Israel. Well, you yeah. are you, yeah, you are Christ. You are Israel, the body, the collective yeah. within the nation of Israel. Yeah. I mean, you'll see in the New Testament now is the language is we are those who are of Christ, those who are in Christ, those who are servants and slaves of Christ is now the language, not so much 
Israel. Yeah. Great. What is uh, replacement theology? Yeah. And what's your opinion? (laughs) So replacement theology is the idea that we as a church have replaced Israel. Okay, that's why it's called replacement theology. So there's, you know, I'll see if I can articulate this. If you can, if you, if, so there's what's there's a view that um, that you had Israel, Israel failed, the church has now replaced Israel. It's like literally replaced it. So there's no more Israel. Okay, and one day something's going to happen in the end that talks about Israel's coming back. The problem with that replacement theology is Romans 9 through 11. Mm-hmm. Is Romans 9 through 11 does not support what I, I, my opinion is, it does not support that replacement theology. <laughs> okay? Because Romans 9 through 11 says there's Israel that God chose. Israel now, because of their unbelief and because of all the things we're reading about, all right? It has literally been put on timeout, and I don't know how else to put it. They really have said, God said, Paul says, Israel's, um, because of that, now they're not, they're not going to be part of what's going on right now, and we have been grafted into a tree. So that, think of it, it's, it's like the, a graft. It's the, the yeah. time of the Gentiles. It's right? a time it's of the, very good way of putting it. There's a term called the time of the Gentiles. Yeah, which good way of putting it. So it's like, we've been grafted in, and now what God's doing is stuff through not Israel. He's now working through the whole world, okay? And it doesn't mean Israel's been replaced, because we've been grafted into the tree, which is the root of Jesse, which is Israel, okay? So we've been, we've been part of that. So it's a problem when you think sort of arrogantly, like somehow, oh, Israel's gone. And that's a whole theology that has... The problem with that is that it is what's created a lot of the anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and a lot of many Jews being killed and murdered. Um, I would probably even say maybe, maybe even the Hitler regime probably would have adopted that. It's like, I get rid of all of them. Okay, we're the new ones. They're they're gone. Okay, mm-hmm. but you've seen this all the way in from the beginning of the church back in 100, 200 AD, where you see as the church started to expand through the Gentile world, the Jews start to be like sort of pushed aside, mm-hmm. and so again, that's not to me. That's not biblical. Yeah, so I, I, I think it's most important as it relates to the promises to Israel because God made yeah. promises to Israel, that's good, and they're irrevocable promises to to very specific mm-hmm. people and very specific genealogies and things like that. They're irrevocable promises. Some things God God says are conditional. Right. Where it's like, I will be your God and you will be if you, if you If you do this, this then I'll do right. that. And sometimes it's just an irrevocable promise or covenant that he makes with, with Israel and very specific things. So I think that is, that is the main issue with that idea of Israel and the idea of replacement theology yeah. is the, the promises to Israel. Well, okay, now, but you bring that up, it's, it's, I don't know, I just, the idea of replacement doesn't make any sense to me at all. Well, that's what we're yeah, saying. No, it doesn't, we're, yeah, saying, so we're saying, we're the saying, the problem is there's a whole no, system yeah, a that's gone up for actually 
I should almost say a couple thousand years, that has caused some of the anti-Semitism because of this idea that somehow the church has replaced Israel. Yeah, or God is completely done with done Israel. Done with it, exactly. Right. Okay. And they're like off yeah. the map. You, they're the gone. promises that, that were for Israel are now exclusively for the Gentiles or the church, right. whatever. Right, right. Which we're saying biblically, I don't, I would say you can't support that. Oh, but it's a big, it's been a, it's been a big thing. Um, okay. Good discussion. <laughs> All right. Just, that's like, just satanic. Well. If we can get rid of the remnant, maybe we uh, win this one. Yeah, but the irony, and that's why it's important, the question he's asking, the irony is, Keep that in mind because a lot of stuff that happens around anti-Semitism actually has its core roots in replacement theology. Sure. So that's why we have to be very careful about how who is Israel. You know, I yeah. never realized that. That's so true. Yeah. Boy. Yeah. So this idea, though, the age of well, Gentiles. I always puzzled by anti-Semitism. Where it originated from? And now right. Begin to see. Yeah. Well, it's definitely satanic. Right? Yeah, yes. like absolutely. Satan, Satan yes. pursuing, um, you know, God's chosen. Right. That's so exactly. sad. Yeah, it is. Yes. Will you? The idea of the age of the Gentiles, like, what is? What would you say is like the biblical start time of that? Is that like at the time of Jesus' Christ. arrival? The cross. Okay. Yeah. But, like, actually... but Jesus had people following him who were Gentiles before he was crucified. Correct. But you notice that actually Jesus says himself, "I came for Israel." <laughs> um. When he was here, I mean, his, he was trying to call, he was trying to do what Isaiah is doing. He was trying to call Israel back and say, this is who you are, yeah. okay, and I've come for yeah. you. But when Jesus died at the cross, as you see, this is what the book of Acts is all about. The book of Acts is all about how all of a sudden you see now this idea that the, when Jesus, beginning of Acts, what happens? Jesus is resurrected, all right? And now you see this whole flow where now, because of what's happened at the cross, salvation has brought been brought not to just Israel anymore, but salvation is now brought to the whole world. Mm-hmm. And Acts is a story of that happening. That's going to happen until Jesus comes again. But I find it interesting that even before they were like Luke was a Gentile, the right? Luke, so like, yeah. it's like. It, it's not just like the cross that starts that, it seems. It's, it starts like when Jesus' like arrival. Yeah, but... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. This is okay. one of the things for me that's like, that makes the Bible challenging, <clears throat> but doesn't need to be. When, when you're, when I'm reading this, it's, it's, it's past, present, future. Everything's happening all at once. Mm-hmm. So it's up to us to, to discern that mm. at any given moment. Plus, take into context, then, right. you know, all the way along the line, right? Mm-hmm. So this big picture start to finish is the, the whole point of this is for us to mature, to mm-hmm. grow into this thing right. and for this relationship to grow to the point of maturity, Yeah. right? So, I mean, there is a reason that we're here and, and going through all of this, yeah. right? And... When was the age of Gentiles? The beginning of time and the end of time and right now. Well, and, and, you, and so in one case, I would say, yes, you're right about that because it all starts back in Genesis 1-1. That's right. Yeah. God made us in his image, male and female. Mm-hmm. No distinctions. No, no distinctions. Jew, Gentile, which is what right. Paul is correcting in Galatians 3.28. So you're right. It's like this is one story, 
but there are scenes in the story. There are yeah. things that happen in the story, but right. And so, and then, yeah, yeah, there, there are timelines and main characters. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's sure, right. certainly. To tell that a good point. Yeah. And yeah. These, these promises that were made. He also said, "You'll be as plentiful as all the, the stars in the sky, the, the sand and yeah. the sea." Right. So I don't know about you guys, but I've got I've got some jewel in the butt. Right? I got to, I mean, it's, you know, the, Well, we spiritually all have you in the blood. We, exactly. So we spiritually <laughs> all do. But, but truly though, also, because what does John say? Of water and of blood. Okay. There's some significance to that blood. There's a reason that the heritage is, is called out, et cetera, et cetera. And I bet all of us have a little bit of Jew in the blood. You know, some you form so? or fashion. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, that's why we're all still here. 23 and me or. That's That's right. Right. Well, yeah. Actually, my daughter just did. It just got back the results, which is interesting. I'm just like, oh, that's very interesting. She was 98.9% European. European? <laughs> European. What does that mean? Well, my dad would call so that mongrel. There's, there's no so we're just a mongrel. We just have everything in us, you know, so... And, All right, <laughs> and the people in Israel, there's a tremendous amount of that population that were yeah. converts. Yeah, they weren't like from the original bloodline. Yeah. So anyway, this is a good discussion because again, it goes back to when we're reading this. It is important to know where we are in the story here, but also we're all doing it. We're seeing how we're part of this whole thing. That's why when we read the, the Word of God, it's like wherever you're reading it, it applies to us. I mean, it ultimately you know, applies to us today. So, going back to 42.1. So notice what happens. It says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then notice what it says in 2 and 3. It says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Mm-hmm. So think about that one for a little bit. So what is that? What is that saying to us about this? The servant about what the role is, the identity. He would not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he would not break, and a faintly burning wood he would not. Quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. What is the saying about? What are we talking about here? Do you think we're we're talking about who who is Christ? How do you identify him? And who are we called to be? So who are we called to be, or Christ, or whatever it's all mixed together? We're finding out. What is? Listen to this language here. It's very metaphorical, obviously. So what is it that's being? What, what are we what are we addressing as far as the identity? What what is what's happening here in two and three? What do you think is what's the contrast? What do you hear when you is there something that comes to your mind when you hear this type of language? Who cries aloud and lifts up his voice and makes it her in the streets? Who does that? Politicians. Very good. <laughs> No, that's actually very good. Exactly right. Politicians. Politicians do it because they want to have influence, power. 
So I want you to think, again, so politicians are the ones who do what? What's the role of a politician? Not in a negative sense, just what's the role of a politician? Make laws. Make laws, right, okay. And? They represent the people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Supposedly. Yeah. Yeah, supposedly. There, it's, it's about how you rule. This is about how do you rule, yeah. okay? Because how did, how, what is the way that the na nations and people would rule in here? If you guys ever watch, you know, like this, going back all the time of Rome, and, you know, when you see this happens, the people come up and say, Hear, hear! The, the you know, the, yeah. the king or the whatever says, da-da, and they make a proclamation. And they're doing it by screaming and having a bunch of people go around the street, and they open up the thing, and they say, Hear, hear! The king says this. The ruler says this. And that's the way the people are ruled, this, like, Okay. So it is written, so it shall be done. It's what? So it is written, so it shall be done. Exactly. Uh, right. The word that came to mind yes, yeah. this again yeah. is meekness. Yeah. Very good. So how would you define meekness? I'm, I'm much misunderstood, but a lot of, yeah. a lot of times. It's um, being able to influence others without banging them over the head. Good, good. Yeah. Blessed are the. Blessed are the. That's really what Jesus means too. Yeah. I mean, he represented meekness. Yeah. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Right. Humility. Right. Yeah. And so you see, he will not do. He would not rule that way. He would not rule by just crying aloud and declaring it and lifting up his voice, making it heard the streets. That's not how this king, this ruler, is going to rule. All right. And now look at verse 3. So you got the meekness. That's a really good one. You got the meekness. What else? What do you see when you think of a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench? What does that, that mean? Human beings. Very good. And what about human beings? How are they? Physically and spiritually wounded. Excellent. But so not broken completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what happens? Take a bruised reed he will not break. Think about that. What's a, what's a reed? It's very delicate. Okay. Things comes out of the water. Right. Okay. So you got this, this plant, the stalk. Okay, good. Coming out of the water, right? Say that, coming out of the water. There's a reed. It kind of waves from side to side. Waves, waves, side. But what happens to this reed that it's talking about here? It says... It bends. Yeah, so it bends, all right? Maybe even it sort of falls over. Mm -hmm. What would you mostly do in your yard or something like that if you come up to something like that? You break it off. Pull it. You, that's right. You pull it. You break it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're supposed to prop it up. So here's something that's been like wounded, right? It's been broken. You want to come along and just say, you know, it's it's the um, what's um, oh my gosh, um, what's the evolution theory about um, survival? Survival of the Thank you. Survival of the fittest. Okay. Be survival of the fittest. What you're gonna do? You're gonna come along and pull it up, right? And what Jesus is saying, what's, what's happening here, this servant, not Jesus, but the servant is someone who's going to not come up to that bruised reed and just destroy it and break it off. He's going to probably be someone who's going to, let's lift it back up. Let's heal mm -hmm. it. Prop right. it up. 
Yeah. Same like thing. You think of a faintly burning wick. You think it's about ready to go off, and you go, blow that thing out. He's not going to blow the light out. He's not going to blow the light out. He's going to try to take someone who's like, wow, just barely a little bit there. Not much left of that person. Ah, let's yeah. figure out about them and go to someone yeah. else. No. Let's come over. Let's take that wick. Let's get it all cleaned up, and let's make sure it burns bright. Well, a tiny bit of oxygen can bring that fire back. There you go. Right? That's a little breath of life. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you think about how do you, how do us as guys, how do we rule <laughs> in our household, at work? There you go. What did our wives say that they're, you know, they're a little broken? What do we do to be Ah, come on! Get some man in you! <laughs> Get some <laughs> Suck it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure none of us had dads. I did. Uh, he was a Marine from Camp Huddleton, so it was very much suck it up. And, yeah. you know, Donald see tears coming from you. Let's get back to work. Come on, be a man. <laughs> That's what that generation did. It did. Over and over again. It that did. was their rallying cry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they had to do it. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Um, so you see the, the, the idea here is this is what Israel was supposed to be, right? And they're not being that, which is part of what we're seeing in the servant songs, is we're seeing this tension between what Israel was called to be Israel's not being that. So all of a sudden you start getting, starting, begin with 42, you start seeing this idea like, like if I was Israel, I was reading this, I'm going, who's he talking about here? You know, is he talking about us? Is he talking about someone else is going to come along? So at this point in time, in Isaiah 42, Israel was not being what they're supposed to be. All right. In fact, if you take, if you guys turn to, just turn a little later to Isaiah 42. Notice how we've got this, behold my servant. Look at 42, um, yeah. Look at 42.18 for a second. So 42.18, notice here's all this great stuff about my servant. Now listen to this. Hear you, deaf. Now, this is God, okay? This is to the servant, this Israel. He's supposed to hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send. Who is blind is my dedicated one or blind is a servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. Who does? What does that sound like from Isaiah? Our old caller again, right? Isaiah what? 6-9. Isaiah 6-9. Okay. So here you see this tension. Notice how Isaiah, Israel, is not, they're called to be the servant. Here's almost like what the servant's supposed to look like. And all of a sudden they get judged by God saying, you are not the servant. So you just see this tension that's going on. Like, what's going to happen here? What does happen? So, 
who could be in the time of this, who could possibly be this servant that looks a little different than Israel's being right now? Mm. I want you to think, go back to the time of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Right now, you're back at that time, all right, around 500 something BC. Israel's not being this. Where is Israel right now, by the way? Where are they? Babylon. 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 Exactly. They've been exiled to Babylon. Hmm? Not in Isaiah's time. Yeah, in Isaiah's time. He's predicting the future of that time. (laughs) Yeah, so let's do it this way. Not in Isaiah, Isaiah, the actual servant writing this time, but the time he's talking about now. The time he's talking about. Yeah, so this time he's talking about right now, we're in the time... If you remember when we jumped to 40, we're in the time where the, where Israel has been exiled to Babylon. Right? Got that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. They're wondering, are we ever, where's our God? Is he, are we going to come back? And remember we started out Isaiah 40 with comfort, comfort my people. And, I, and God was telling his people, I'm still here for you. Yes, you're in exile. You've been put in exile because... Sort of judgment, but that judgment's done. Now I've come and said, comfort, comfort my people, hoping to give them, like, I'm here, you, but you are still to be my servant. All right? And they're, they're like questioning, who, who is that? All right? And they're not still becoming that, and they're in exile. So what does God do? A little history here. What does God do at this point? Who could, in very much short, short the time period right here, within the next hundred years, who could this be referring to? Could. Mm. Who's going to become like the servant? Daniel. Go ahead. <laughs> what do you think for a second? Okay. Daniel. Daniel. Who's going to who's going to be the one Paul? to save? Is it, is it Nehemiah? Who built the wall? Yeah. He built Nehemiah. He, okay. Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he builds the wall. Yeah. Where does he build the wall? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Yeah. But where are the people right now? They're in Babylon. Babylon. They're in Babylon. A lot of them stayed in Babylon. Okay. So if they're in Babylon. Okay, they're in Babylon. Here's the story again. They're in Babylon. Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall. Why why is Nehemiah building the wall? Because where are the people in Nehemiah? I don't remember now. Well, he's rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. Right? Why is he rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem? Because the people that were in Babylon were set free by Darius? No. What else? Say it again. Cyrus. Cyrus. Cyrus, oh yeah. Cyrus. You got it. Okay? Amazing. In fact, turn. And we'll be wrapping this up. Okay? Turn to Isaiah 44. 
So we're not very far along, right? Isaiah 44, and look at verse 28. First mention of Cyrus, okay? So, here it says, the answer to for Jason, you can hear that, Jason, while you're in there? Yeah. Cyrus. Cyrus. <laughs> okay? Uh, yes. So, Isaiah 44, 28, notice what it says right there. Who says to the deep in 27, be dry, I would dry up the rivers. Who says to Cyrus, mm-hmm. listen to this. Now, who is Cyrus? He's the... He's the Persian king. Persian king. He is is he a Jew? No. No. He's the king of Persia. And just think you're an Israelite during this time, and you're reading this, and you're going, <coughs> Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Shepherd? <laughs> when you think shepherd, who do you think of? Jesus. No, yeah. Not Christ isn't here yet. Yeah, for them. Oh, you mean for them? Uh, Who do they think of when they hear shepherd? Who? God. David. 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 King David. King David. So here you're calling the king of Cyrus, and you're giving him the identity of David. Hmm. Because what is King? What is Cyrus going to do? That He's God is serving, calling to do? He's going to rebuild over there. Right. Purpose. 45.1, thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus. Listen to that language again. I know you guys how shocking this would be to Israel. That's part of the reason why they continue sort of an unbelief, because they're like, God does not work through. God's using a king of a pagan nation to do what? To be his anointed, to be his shepherd? whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him and to lose the belts of kings. He's calling Cyrus to do this? Incredible. It is incredible. Yeah, but at the same time, come on, guys, don't you read the other stuff? How did God use Pharaoh? <laughs> well, over and over I know, again. I know, but you still are like, <laughs> This is what? also 150 years before Cyrus happened. And it's yeah, it is. by name. It is. But now they're reading it. Picture them reading this, like, actually at that time. Yeah. Right? And they hear now the Cyrus. So, what is, so you remember that description I just read to you about the bruised reed? And I mean, very much different, a different ruler than a normal ruler. Okay? And some think that that here in that context could be alluding to Cyrus because Cyrus is very unique as a ruler. Okay? So, my question do you guys have 10 minutes left? Then we'll close? Okay. So I'm going to have you listen to something. It's, it's pretty fascinating. It actually sort of like validates something about the Bible. Um, which we not we need history to do that, but it's really nice when history does. So I'm going to play something for you, which is actually really fascinating. Have you guys... Um, let's see, let me bring it up. Have you guys ever heard of the Cyrus Cylinder? No. Okay. So you're going to learn something new. Uh, this is a good one also. If any apologetics are you ever get into out to saying, you know, like, how does history support, you know, what God's done? Um, so let me do this. And then we will, then we'll close. Um,
Okay, there we go. Good, it's ready up. Perfect. Okay. Is it clicking? No, there we go. I think I maybe need to do this. There we go. Okay. So let me start here. Open this up. Make sure my sound is good. Should be good. Okay, perfect. All right. Does someone just go? Who's missing? All right. Charlie. All right. Wait to Charlie. So this is about um, this is about this object they found. Which is actually, we just talked about the decree, okay? It actually was found, you find out in 1800, that actually goes back and actually proves, not that we need to prove, but it goes back and it validates what actually has happened about Cyrus. And I want you to listen what Cyrus did and how he was different as a ruler, almost really fulfilling this part that we start out in Isaiah. Um, can we, can yes. you confirm really quick? So. But this was written 150 years prior to Cyrus. Yeah. Okay, so these guys, when you're reading it in that day, or you heard Isaiah no saying this, you had no idea no, who this yeah, person no. was. Yeah. It was well, right, at this yeah. very moment you don't, and then all of a sudden Cyrus comes on the scene. I mean, it happens like this. Babylon, yeah. they're in Babylon. They, they've been, they were taken to that Babylon, right? And then within a very quick period of time, all of a sudden, Persia comes out of nowhere. Cyrus leads them and poof, swoops down, takes over all um, takes over all Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, gone like that. You wonder how fast empires can come and go. And now Cyrus is king, but he is very different from the other kings. And you're going to listen. You're going to hear why. So because of what they have found here. So let's see if this works. Whoops. Uh, All right. It's not found until 1879. So it's like this little secret that's remained hidden. This idea of respect and tolerance for various religions, ethnic groups, and people, it's something that we still, I think, are grappling with, and we need to have a blueprint. I think this is one of these ancient ones. I'm always amazed by how small it is and how powerful it is at the same time, which is really wonderful to remember that power resides in the content and the meaning and not necessarily an enormous monument. The Cyrus Cylinder is the single most famous object that relates the concerns and issues we have today to the ancient world. Cyrus Cylinder is a cuneiform uh, inscription which records Cyrus the Great's conquest of Babylon and some of his great achievements. And in particular, says that people who had been displaced under the Babylonian regime could go back to the homes that they came from and that the gods, the statues of the gods that they worshipped could also return to their temples. In the cylinder itself, Cyrus 
gives voice to policies that are unique in the ancient world. Instead of boasting about plunder, he tells us that he not only was welcomed by the Babylonians, but that he restored their sanctuaries, that he brought back people to their homelands, and that he, in a sense, liberated people rather than subjugated them. So he describes a different way of being a monarch in the ancient world. And this is not something that the previous rulers have done. And not many rulers have done it since. <laughs> we know that Cyrus was true to his word uh, and did restore these buildings that had been desecrated by the Babylonians uh, and did, um, as it were, bring the gods back into their sanctuaries in both Babylon and, according to the biblical accounts, in Jerusalem. So it's the form of rule the, the model of governance that Cyrus introduces that makes him a significant figure. I think the empire that he establishes is the first great ancient empire, which goes from the Indus River all the way to the Mediterranean. It brings together these diverse civilizations that were all important, but now they're all put together, and they're in contact with each other. He was a great conqueror, so it wasn't that he was in any way a pacifist or opposed to the use of force. I mean, you don't build a great empire without conquering other peoples, and he did that. But he clearly realized that to hold a multi-ethnic empire together, it was wise statescraft to allow them to worship their own gods, to have their own culture, as long as they paid their taxes and um, supported the regime in the most fundamental level. There is a new economic system. A new imperial system is created in Eurasia. And certainly this is a new beginning. We go back to this idea of tolerance or what is known in history as Pax Persica, the Persian peace. But for 200 years, there is relative peace. And contrary to ancient empires, rather than sucking in or taking all the resources of the uh, provinces, to the center, what you have is actually economic prosperity for all of the empire. He, almost uniquely for an ancient Middle Eastern ruler, was seen very favorably in the Greek tradition as a wise and somewhat benevolent ruler. And likewise, in the Old Testament, he appears as a, um, well, a hero, effectively, for the Jewish people because it was he who allowed the exiles the, the, the Jews had been displaced from Jerusalem and elsewhere in Judah to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. They were allowed to return and rebuild their temple. According to the Bible, Cyrus issued a decree that appointed and commissioned Jews to go back home, to go and build their temple and to restructure and restart life in their homeland. And according to the Bible, they did. And that ensured Jewish survival. It also created a flowering of Jewish life in the land of Israel and uh, created a legacy that's important not only to Jews, but also to Christians and Muslims, because it was at that time that the sacred writings of the Jewish people were brought together and edited and um, revised and shaped to create what we know as the Bible. 
So one can say that the Bible that we have was decisively shaped in the time of the Persian Empire under Persian rule, and none of this would have been possible without Cyrus. The discovery of the Cyrus 70 was particularly important because we had the stories about Cyrus from the Greek writers and in the Old Testament, which painted this um, uh, very positive um, picture of him, but it was hard to know which elements of this were historically correct and what might have been in some way edited or adapted to the narrative of these writers. Here was an inscription from Cyrus's own day which said explicitly that those who had been displaced in and around Babylonia could return with their gods to where they'd come from. So this was contemporary confirmation that these other records were, did have a basis in historical truth. I mean, it's not found until 1879. So it's like this little secret that's remained hidden and, until it's unearthed in the uh, foundations of the temple in, in Babylon. And it, it, it's... Uh, it adds credence to the understanding of Cyrus that you find in the Bible and in the classical Greek texts. You know, it's not until you read translations of the inscription that you begin to hear the voice of Cyrus speaking. And I think that's its significance for me, is that it's a voice calling down through 2,500 years and, and telling us of one ruler's vision as to what might be possible. Anyway, so I didn't lose good. Yes, get that? Was it stone? What was it? Yeah, it's like a stone thing that around how they're writing it around one. That's how they used to do it in those days, they would write that on a cylinder. And so this is actually Cyrus's voice. Was it originally stone? Yeah, yeah. And that's what made it survive. So it's that, that mm. thing's a stone cylinder yeah. in which you have the inscriptions and you can just turn it like this and read it. Oh. Okay. Um, I wonder if they used to use any sort of ink and roll it on the, like papyrus. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Press. Yeah. So what you just heard there, and I'm just going to read it right now. I think you guys will have it later. Um, so this is Ezra 1.1. Okay. So you just think about what we're reading here which we believe, historically all happened, was completely confirmed through this mm-hmm. inscription. Mm-hmm. Okay? So this is what it says. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, this is Ezra 1.1, in order to fill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, and obviously Isaiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and put it in writing. Notice how the Lord roused Cyrus. Yeah, yeah. So what you're hearing here is who is the one who did that? Why is he this ruler like we just read? He's the Lord's servant. Because the Lord, yeah, exactly. Okay. So he issues a proclamation. We just saw that at the this, this, this thing. Throughout his entire kingdom and put it in writing. <laughs> saw it. It was in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him. And may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the temple of the God of Israel, 
the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with the free will offering of the house of God in Jerusalem. Yeah. So God uses a non-Israelite to become the king, to act like Israel really should have acted, to mm-hmm. come in and save his people, and to do exactly what Charlie said, take them back to Jerusalem, to be having Nehemiah, and rebuild the wall and bring the people back from exile, return from exile. Our God is an awesome God. <laughs> That's what I've got to say. Greg, yes. a lot of the people did not go back, though. Right? A lot of people did not. And that's why, well, we could, we, we had to go. But that's where, actually, they would still say, and even today, the Jews would say, there really has not been the full return from exile. Right. It never really fully happened. Where and that's they... where, in Revelation, you start seeing a fulfillment of that. Hopefully. Where did they find it? Um, in Babylon. They found it in one of the temples in Babylon. I see. Yeah. So, 1879. Yeah. Refresh. Yeah. To this day, there are thousands of Persian Jews. Yeah. Beverly Hills yeah. is full of Persian Jews. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. All the big real estate. Absolutely. Is that the Ashkenazi? Is it, what's it called? That I don't know. But, hmm. Yeah. It's just, you Ashkenazi. see the way God is just. That's, that's like a lot of the European uh, that were converts that became Jews, like. You know, a long, 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 long time ago. So they're they're Jews from all over different parts of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So really so if you can for this next week, we're going to now like jump ahead because if you can read from Isaiah 42 to 48, because next week we're going to go to 49, the second servant song. Yeah. And what's interesting is we're going to now jump past Cyrus. We're going to go through Cyrus that we just heard about, and we're going to go forward from there. All right, um, and Find out what's going on. <laughs> Why do we need another servant song? All right? Um, and you start building, and we'll also see the connections with Jesus through that. All right? Great. Good. All right. Father, thank you for this evening. Again, we left up Jeff. Um, anybody who's sick, Lord, just be with them. Um, and we just thank you. I, I just am amazed tonight, even just listening to that again, and just going, our God is not just an awesome God, but this word of God is true. Yes. Um, and we thank you, Lord, for giving us a word that is your word. May we be servants of that word. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.